Hey, good morning, LifePoint. I've got some news for you. Next Sunday, we're going to begin outdoor services on the lawn here at LifePoint, 10.30 a.m., one service. It's going to be family style. Um, parents, you're going to be responsible for your children during that time. And uh, per government directives, um, we're asking that everyone wear a mask unless you're unable to. Uh, we, we're not going to ask because we're not allowed to ask um, about a medical reason that you might have. Um, so along those lines, uh, and with that in mind, um, realize that when you come to our outdoor service next Sunday at 10.30 a.m., there will be some people who are not wearing a mask. Uh, we're asking that you bring your own uh, lawn chairs or your own blankets. Uh, no food or beverage is going to be served. And uh, if you can't come or are unable to come for some reason, um, the service will still be recorded and you'll still be able to watch it right here in this venue on YouTube on Sunday mornings. So I'm excited about that. We're going to keep doing that as long as weather permits. And uh, if uh, if as we approach each weekend, uh, starting next Sunday, or next weekend, um, the weather looks iffy, be sure to uh, go online to mylpcoli.com uh, or to our LifePoint Community Facebook group. And uh, we will be sure to let you know what our plans are. But I'm excited about this, and I hope that you are too. We'll be able to uh, begin seeing each other again each week. And I can't believe we're already five weeks into this series that we titled Embrace Joy, uh, which is a study through the New Testament book uh, uh, known as Philippians. And as we've seen, Paul is uh, writing this letter from prison, or more accurately, from a kind of house arrest most likely in the city of Rome, and he's writing to a church that's several hundred miles away in the Roman colony of Philippi in the Roman province of Macedonia, which today is northern Greece. This church had a very special place in Paul's heart for a number of reasons, not least among them the fact that um, this was the very first church that Paul planted in Europe and uh Despite geographical distance, they had enjoyed a very close relationship and a very supportive partnership um, together. In in chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, by, by way of a very quick review, Paul greeted them. He expressed his deep thankfulness uh, to them for their partnership in the gospel, to God for them for their partnership in the gospel, and he outlined the content of his really affectionate and focused prayers for them. In verses 12 to 18, then, he related to them the the surprising news that his imprisonment, uh, about which they had been very concerned, had really turned out uh, for the advance of the gospel, both within the imperial palace and throughout the world. And then in verses 18 to 26, Paul rejoices uh, because of his confidence that through the prayers of the Philippians, And the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, he would be delivered. But he's careful to clarify that that deliverance could mean release from prison, or it could equally mean his own death. 
In fact, he was torn between the two options. His desire was that he would have sufficient courage for whatever came, and that Christ would be magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. And then in verse 21, he he wrote that famous statement, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To depart and be with Christ, he said, would be better by far, but to remain in the body would mean continuing fruitful labor for him in the advance of the gospel. And his personal belief was that it would be the latter, that that he would live and that he would see the Philippians uh, again face to face. In verses 27 to 30 of this first chapter of Paul's letter, he now issues the first of several exhortations that are distributed throughout the letter. It's an exhortation to faithful living in fearful times. The particular source of the fear experienced by the Christians in Philippi was a a group of people that Paul simply refers to as their opponents. Uh, Maybe you've experienced opposition to your faith in Jesus from people in your life. It may range from gentle ribbing to open harassment or even worse. Perhaps you've, you have a friend or a classmate or a family member or, or an employee or a coworker who, who regularly gets in your face or ridicules you or generally makes life difficult because of your personal faith in Jesus Christ. Or maybe it's more than one or two. And the fact is that, that whenever any of us chooses to identify ourselves as a follower of Jesus and to serve him in our lives, we will experience opposition. Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you've been a believer for any length of time, you've already experienced at least a hint of that in your life. So how ought we to live in light of that truth? What does it mean to live faithfully in fearful times? If you have your Bible, please open it or log on to your Bible app and join me uh, in Philippians 1, 27 to 30. In fact, you might want to read aloud with me wherever you happen to be right now. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Will you pray with me before we continue? Father God, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for the ways that it speaks 
into our lives powerfully by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, today I pray that you would be our teacher, that you would allow us to see the things that you want us to see, to understand the things that you want us to understand. And then, Lord, that you would give us the insight in how to live it out in our lives courageously and obediently for the sake of Christ and for the advance of the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is an amazing passage, and there's just so much to take in and think about that that I was kind of stymied about just exactly where to start in unpacking it with you. I decided that it made sense to start where I've already started with the question, what exactly was the opposition being experienced by the Philippian believers, and from whom? In his second letter to the church in Corinth, Paul wrote of the churches in Macedonia generally that they had experienced a severe test of affliction that apparently resulted in their extreme poverty. And the fact is that we don't know what that specific severe test of affliction was. So we have to connect some dots. We just read verses 29 to 30 where Paul said to them, It has been granted to you. It's a gift of God to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. From that, we can infer a few things. First of all, the affliction and the opposition that they had, they had experienced rose to the level where even Paul, who had experienced a great deal of adversity for the gospel, even Paul called it suffering. Second, he observed that the conflict in which they were engaged was the same as the one in which they had seen him engaged on his one and only visit to their city. On that occasion, you might remember that Paul and his teammate Silas had been seized and dragged before the city rulers on false charges. This is in Acts chapter 16. They were attacked by the crowd in the marketplace. Now imagine that. It it became a riot. The crowd got involved in attacking Paul and Silas in the marketplace. And then the magistrates tore Paul and Silas's garments off of them and ordered that they be beaten with rods. When the beating was over, they were thrown into jail where their feet were fastened in stocks. So the Philippian Christians, if they're engaged in the same conflict, the Philippian Christians must have also been subject to false accusations, false imprisonment, and physical abuse. But but remember that Paul also reported to the Corinthians that the Macedonian believers had been reduced to extreme poverty. So perhaps those who opposed them had also seized their finances, their property, other assets. Who were these opposers? 
And again, we, we simply don't know, but we might infer that the city officials in Philippi could have been among them. Uh, they might have persisted in persecuting the fledgling church. Another set of suspects might be the Jewish antagonists who, who kind of made it their job to follow Paul wherever he went and to harass him and his team. It's conceivable that, that they might have shifted their efforts in part from Paul to his converts and to the churches that he was planting. Additionally, it's worth noting that the provinces of Macedonia and Achaia had provided the battlegrounds for three successive wars that resulted in the pillaging and the impoverishment of the common people. And the Christians would not have been left untouched by that. So it's to a church that's well acquainted with extreme affliction and suffering for Christ that Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this letter, and more specifically this morning, this exhortation contained in verses 27 to 30. And by the way, what's an exhortation? We just kind of throw these words around. Exhortation is not a word you hear every day. It means a kind of communication in which one person emphatically urges and encourages another person to to an action of some kind. So an exhortation is usually emphatic so that there's a sense of urgency about the action that the exhorter has in mind for them. The translators of the New International Version begin in verse 27 with the two words, whatever happens, fits the context. The problem is it's not present in the original manuscripts. So what is there? Just one word, the one that we see here in the English Standard Version, the word only. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And notice that the word only makes this an all-encompassing exhortation. Paul is saying, make this the one central organizing principle of your life that your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now allow me, if you will, to, to unpack this a little further. Paul, Paul employs a word on, on this occasion which he very seldom uses to talk about one's manner of life. The, the word he most often used meant literally to, to walk around. To walk. And in fact, he uses it in a a parallel passage in Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, when he wrote, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But here in Philippians 1, 27, he uses a word that means citizenship, or to be a citizen. It's actually the word from which we get our word politics. Remember that that Paul was writing from the very center of the Roman Empire, from Rome itself. The fact that he was a Roman citizen is what had brought him there. Philippi was a Roman colony. 
William Barclay noted that Roman colonies were like little bits of Rome planted throughout the empire, where the citizens never forgot that they were Romans, spoke the Roman language, which was Latin, wore Roman clothing, and called their government officials by their Roman titles, however far they might have been from Rome itself. So what Paul is saying, I think, is is this, that you and I know full well the the privileges and the responsibilities of being a Roman citizen. You know full well how even in Philippi, so far from Rome, you must still live and act in a manner befitting a Roman citizen. In the same way, then, you must remember and never forget that you have an even higher allegiance. Wherever you are, you must live as befits a citizen of the kingdom of God. What does it mean to live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel? And what does that word worthy even mean? Well, it literally means to possess worth that matches actual value. The word comes from the marketplace, and it was used to to describe the balance of scales. When the weight on one side of the scale balanced with whatever was on the other side, perhaps gold or silver, it was declared to be worthy. And what I think Paul is saying is that we who, as he wrote to the Colossians, have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of God's beloved Son as recipients of God's grace and citizens of the kingdom of God are to live our lives in a manner that is in balance with the weight of the gospel. Now let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ so as to earn it or deserve it. To the Ephesians, Paul wrote, for by grace you have been saved, by grace Through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Having given you the gift of faith and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross that led to your salvation, here's what you'll never hear God say. He will never say to you, now earn it. Earn it. The fact is, you and I will never, ever, ever in a thousand lifetimes be worthy of the gospel in the sense of being deserving. Our salvation was earned by Jesus Christ on the cross. In his final words from the cross, Jesus said, It is finished, which means paid in full. Paid in full. Jesus described his mission in these words, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The lost, that's you and me. Apart from Christ, we're lost. Lost in terms of the direction of our lives. Lost for eternity. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save 
sinners of whom I am the foremost. Sinners. That's you and that's me. In the remainder of verse 27 and into verse 28, Paul gives us then four characteristics of a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And again, regardless of whether he might be delivered or or have the opportunity to visit them again, or he might be absent, which is the word we saw last week that Paul used in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, to describe death being absent from the body. Paul wanted to hear that four things were true of them. He wanted to hear that they were standing firm, that they were striving together for the faith of the gospel, that they were one in heart and mind, and that they were not frightened in anything by their opponents. Well, let's take a look at each of those. First of all, he wanted to hear first that, that they were standing firm. Standing firm. What, what did he mean? Well, in sports, this would probably be considered a strong defense. A strong defense. The expression stand firm seems to have come from the military world. Paul used it in his discussion of spiritual warfare and the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, he wrote in, in verse 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. In his commentary on Philippians, William Barclay wrote that Paul expects a certain unconquerability. I like that. A certain unconquerability. In the first century, Roman soldiers were regarded as unconquerable. They were considered the best trained, the most disciplined, the most formidable fighting force in the world. When they went into battle, they would wear nail boots. Now, picture this. These are boots that had nails driven through the soles that enabled them to stand firm in the shield wall when they would lock their shields together and face the enemy so that they would not lose their footing. They would not be driven backward by the crush of the enemy. And this is most likely the image Paul had in mind. He wanted to be confident that in the thick of spiritual opposition, in the thick of adversity, In the midst of fearful times, the Philippian believers would keep their feet. They'd be steadfast. They'd be unmovable and and persevere in their obedience to Christ. Not give in, not be discouraged, not be dismayed, not to be set back in any way. See, the world and, and the church are full of Christians who retreat at the slightest hint of opposition or discomfort or inconvenience. The true citizen of the kingdom of heaven, Paul wants them to know, stands firm, unashamed of the gospel, refusing to retreat. 
Second, Paul wanted to hear that they were striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The particular word Paul uses here that's translated striving comes from the world of athletics. It literally means to engage in athletic competition together as a team. And if standing firm is all about a strong defense, then striving side by side is all about a strong offense. Everybody knows that there's no I in team by now, right? I mean, if you're, if you're a team, then, then you win and lose as a team. To be competitive in team athletics, whether you're talking baseball, football, basketball, soccer, hockey, or even doubles, ping pong, requires each team member to do their part and to give it all of the strength and speed and skill and mental acuity that they can bring. I think this is what Paul had in mind earlier in this chapter when he wrote in verses 3 to 5, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. See, there is in this image of competing as a team and as well as the image of partnership, uh, a theme of being on the same page, of being intimately and radically identified with each other. And man, I, I am so thankful for so many here at LifePoint who live and serve with that heart, with that attitude, with that mind, with that commitment. And whether we think in terms of teamwork or partnership, none of us can stand apart from or above or beneath anyone else. We have to stand, as Paul said, side by side. Now, notice what Paul says in verse 27 we should be striving for, which is the faith of the gospel. He he doesn't say faith itself. Please note that. What he says is the faith. There's the definite article, the, in front of it. The faith. What is the faith? Well, a simple definition might be that the faith is the collective teaching of the apostles and the prophets that finds its fulfillment in the person and work of Messiah Jesus. Paul's talking about sound biblical doctrine that is centered in the gospel and that exalts Jesus Christ as Lord. Paul wrote to the Colossians about a a basic foundational responsibility of every Christian. Colossians 2, 6, and 7, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. There's that word walk again. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. The faith just as you were taught, and abounding in thanksgiving. See, neither of, neither of us, none of us, can, can claim to be walking in Christ if we're not assuming personal responsibility to get established in the faith. Well, how do we do that? Well, there are a number of ways. Let me suggest a few. One is by being in church regularly to receive biblical teaching. See, there's no spiritual growth without biblical learning. 
Another way is by gathering together with other believers, perhaps more mature believers in some cases, who can teach and mentor us in God's Word, whether individually or in small groups. Another way is by reading and meditating on God's Word in a in a systematic fashion, or by getting involved in a disciplined Bible study where, where you're going to learn deeper truth. Groups like Bible Study Fellowship or Precepts or, or even our adult Sunday school here at LifePoint. Another way is by reading books written by godly men and women down through the ages. And by partnering with others in active ministry where you're, you're not only learning God's word, but you're learning to work it out and to live it out in your life. To Timothy, Paul wrote, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. Depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. And Jude, the brother of Jesus, sounded the alarm. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The implication there is delivered by the Holy Spirit through the apostles and the prophets to the saints, that is, to the church. For certain people, he goes on, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. See, today there are still false teachers in the church who are teaching doctrines that are demonic in their origins that are being passed off as biblical, and they're deceiving immature, undiscerning Christians who are not, as Paul put it, established in the faith. Paul says we're to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. German theologian Karl Barth said Christians do not strive against anybody but for the faith. To strive side by side for the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ certainly includes the proclamation of the gospel, making him known, sharing our faith with others. But it also includes the preservation of the faith so that the purity of the gospel continues to be passed down faithfully, from generation to generation. The third thing Paul wanted to hear that the Philippians were doing was living in unity with each other. Such a major theme in his letters. Notice those two phrases in verse 27. In one spirit, with one mind. In one spirit, with one mind. A modern way of expressing this would be one in heart and soul. One speaks to the intellect and the will and the other to the soul, one's unique individual personality. In the next section, Paul's going to go deep into the matter of unity in the church and how it's achieved. For now, just notice verses 2 to 4 of chapter 2. Complete my joy. We'll, We'll look at this next week. Complete my joy by being of the same mind 
having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Fourth, Paul wanted to hear that the Philippians were fearless in the face of their opponents. Notice verse 28, not frightened in anything by your opponents. The Philippians, as as did most early Christians, dealt with at least three fears. The fear of imprisonment, the fear of loss, and the fear of physical harm or death. Certainly see all three of those in the experience of the Macedonian churches. Paul demonstrated for us that imprisonment need not be feared. His imprisonment, several of his imprisonments, had resulted in the advance of the gospel. And in this case, into the whole Praetorian Guard and even into the household of Caesar himself. Paul also demonstrated that loss need not be feared. In chapter 4, verses 10 to 13, Paul told them that he had learned how to be content in any and every circumstance, in poverty or abundance, and that he could handle any circumstance that came his way through the strength that Christ provides. Paul also demonstrated that physical harm and death need not be feared. He said to die is gain. To be with Jesus is better. And he reminded them in 3.20-21 that our citizenship is in heaven. And we await a Savior from there. And when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, we will exchange these weak, fragile human bodies for new and glorious, immortal, indestructible, incorruptible bodies that are like his. And then in the latter half of verse 28, Paul makes this heart-stopping statement. Those four exhortations, those four things Paul wanted to hear are a clear sign to their opponents of their destruction. But he said, of your salvation and that from God. The Philippians' fearlessness in the face of their opponents would send a clear sign to both of them. It's a two-sided sign. On on one side, it it signals to their opponents that they're going to be destroyed. They're going to be annihilated. On the other, it gives evidence to the Philippian believers that their salvation is real. Now think about that moment when an NFL team lined up their offense against the 2013 Seattle Seahawks Legion of Boom. I mean, there's Earl Thomas at free safety and then Bam Bam Cam, Chancellor, at strong safety, Richard Sherman, Brendan Browner, Walter Thurman, Byron Maxwell at cornerback, and then add names like Bobby Wagner and K.J. Wright, Michael Bennett, 
Cliff Averill, Malcolm Smith, Brandon Meebane, Frank Clark, Chris Clemens, and Bruce Irvin. And then imagine the sinking feeling of the opposing offense as they go three and out. And then they go three and out. And then they go three and out. And three and out again. Against one of the most formidable defenses in the history of the National Football League. A clear sign to them of their destruction. And then their defense comes on the field and gets run over by Russell Wilson and Marshawn Lynch, Doug Baldwin, Luke Wilson, Golden Tate, and the Super Bowl championship offensive line. A clear sign to them of their destruction. See, when you come up against an unfrightened, immovable defense and an unfrightened, unstoppable offense, you know the plane flight home is going to be a quiet one. And when you are that unfrightened, immovable defense and that unfrightened, unstoppable offense, you know you're going to feel the pain when you get up on Monday morning, but in the end you will have prevailed. It's a clear sign of victory. See, by standing firm, we we present that strong defense, and by striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, we present that strong offense. Well, there's a lot more I'd like to say this morning, but I'm I'm out of time. But we'll pick it back up next Sunday in chapter two, and I hope that you'll be here on the lawn, ten thirty, or that you'll be watching here on YouTube. Until then. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what I'd like to say in closing. Find a way this week to connect with someone in our church that you haven't seen in a while, that that you've missed during this season apart, and love on them. Maybe it's a personal meeting. Maybe it's a phone call. Maybe it's a note in the mail. Maybe it's an email or a text encouraging them, expressing that you miss them and you love them. Love each other. That's always the challenge to the church. Love each other. Have a great week.